We're gonna be in Luke 2 today, Luke 2, and we're gonna look at a long section of text, but I've, I've cut it up a little bit uh, just so we can get through it. We're gonna look at Luke 2, 22 through 24, and then 39 through 52. So if you'll be turning there with me, of course, it's written by the gospel writer Luke, um, who was, as we learned a few weeks ago, we finished up the Colossians series, just a, a great worker in the early church. But he, he writes these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And, and so therefore they come to us, these ancient words come to us today with a freshness, with power, um, as if God himself were speaking these things to us. So let's hear together the word of the Lord. Luke 2, beginning in 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought, they being Mary and Joseph, brought him, him being Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to go offer sacrifices according to what it is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now let's skip down to verse 39. They, Mary and Joseph, performed everything according to the law of the Lord, and they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they came up according to their custom. When the feast was ended, they were returning back to Galilee. But the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be with the group, they had traveled a day's journey. But they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you for three days in great distress. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they returned not, and, and they did not understand the saying that he had spoken to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Well, last week we started a sermon series called The Righteous Life of Christ. And, and as I've been kind of talking to you uh, this week, I'm, I'm glad we're doing this. I think it's something that we need to think more about as a church, a part of the ministry of Jesus that, that as Christians is, is incredibly important to our lives and something that we probably in kind of modern church life haven't done, haven't done enough to think about it in a, in a deep way, in a way that really applies to us, in a, in a way that really can impact and change our lives. There are three main points, three main parts to the ministry of Jesus. When, you, when we think about the ministry of Jesus and what he did, we, we, we have to talk about his life, his death, and his resurrection. 
Now, the, the one that we probably talk the most about is his death. Now, of course, all of these are kind of an endless well. It's hard to summarize them succinctly. Uh, they're an endless well of truth and, and goodness. But the one that we, we, we probably talk most about is his death, that Jesus paid the price of sin. Jesus went to the cross and paid the price of humanity's sin on our behalf. So if you're in Christ, through faith in Christ, he has taken on the punishment that you deserved. He died the death that you should have died. And now through faith, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We, we can stand before God forgiven. We can stand before God with life, with, with mer- uh, as the object of his mercy and grace. We are totally free from any condemnation because of the death of Christ. Through faith in him, Jesus has paid for all of our sin. The, the, the second thing that we probably talk second most about is the resurrection of Jesus, right? The power of the resurrection that Jesus didn't die for us, but he overcame death. Death did not have the last word. And in the resurrection, what Jesus is doing in he's renewing the world. He's renewing creation. He's bringing about a new creation, if you will, a renewed creation. And, and, and what he invites us to, those of us who are in Christ, he in, invites us to take part in this great renewal project, right? So no longer we, have to live, we, we no longer have to live for ourselves or for our little kingdoms. We join God in what he is doing, how he's renewing and restoring the whole world. This begins, of course, with the, the resurrection of Jesus, but, but it, it goes on. It comes to us. God renews us. <laughs> he works out sin in our life. He, he works out you know, uh, the, the, the effects of the fall, the effects of sin, the, the perversions and distortions that sin has created in our hearts. God is working those out. He's renewing us. And then he's inviting us to take part in the renewal of the entire world, of the entire universe. So that's the, the ministry, the power of the resurrection, that Christ has overcome death and he's begun this renewal project that he invites us to be a part of. Now, here's, here's the deal. I think the reason that most of us don't wake up every morning thinking, I am a part of the renewal project of God. I am, I am called by God himself to bring renewal and redemption to the entire world. God is renewing me. I think the reason that we're not focused on this person's in my life so that I can be God's agent of grace to them, not that we never think about those things, but the, the reason that that those kinds of thoughts, that that kind of action is clouded. We don't think about that that often. I think the reason is, of course, that we, we think about our, ourselves too much. And the, the reason is because we haven't thought enough about the life of Jesus. So we talked about last week, what, what we are trying to do is trying to achieve for ourselves. What we wake up in the morning thinking is, and we don't use this word, but we wake up in the morning thinking, how can I bring about a righteousness of my own. Again, we don't use that word, but we say, how can I make it today? How can I do something that justifies myself today? How can I do something that really proves that I'm somebody worth something today? We're out trying to find a righteousness of our own, and thus we don't think about, we don't live into the much higher calling, the much greater calling that God has called us to in Christ, this renewal project of the entire universe. 
And the reason that we are always thinking about finding a righteousness of our own, creating a righteousness of our own, is we haven't understood the righteous life of Christ. That Jesus in his life, he didn't just model righteousness for us. This is what you gotta understand, guys. He, didn't, he wasn't just a model, though he was. He was fulfilling all righteousness. He was achieving on your behalf, if you were in Christ, perfect righteousness before God. So that in Christ, because of the righteous life of Christ, you can stand before God as righteous as Jesus is. In um, theology, we talk about the imputation, right? We, we, there's imputation theology, that, that, that our sin, that the record of our sin was imputed to Christ, that our record of sin was given to Christ and he died on our behalf and that his record of righteousness, his perfect righteousness before God was imputed to us. Now, of course, we talked about last week that what is righteousness? Righteousness is, is having perfect fellowship with God. It's having fellowship with God and, 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 and knowing God and delighting in God and, and loving what God loves and hating what God hates and thinking as God would think and doing as God would do. And of course, only Jesus did that. You know, Martin Luther, when he talked about this idea, this, this good news of the gospel, he talked about it like a math equation. He called it the great exchange. And, and this, this, it's, it's this idea of imputation. It's an amazing exchange. And so, of course, you know, we understand that, that we as, as individuals, I'll use myself here, I have sinned. I, I have gone away from God's design. I have not lived in perfect fellowship with God. I have not achieved righteousness, right? I haven't thought as God thinks. I haven't done as God does. I haven't hated what God hates. I haven't loved what God loves. I have sinned, and therefore, what I deserve from God what God's justice calls for is, is punishment. But of course, Jesus, he's the only one who came and he achieved righteousness. He achieved all righteousness. He never sinned. He always did what was right. He, he, he always loved what his father loved. He, he always hated what his father hated. He, he always uh, thought as his father would think and, and he did what his father would do. And therefore, because of his righteousness, what he deserves what he deserves for this righteousness is reward, fellowship with God forever. But what happened? This is the amazing news of the gospel, that, that Jesus, when he came, my record of sin was imputed to him. He took on my record of sin. And in my place, he died the death that I should have died. This is what the cross is all about. But the good news, you know, the good news of Christianity, and I want you to get this. I had a, I was, I, when I was in seminary, I took some, classes in England, and I would never forget one of my professors said to me, he said, Jason, the wonder of the gospel is not that we're just brought to naught. I didn't know what that meant, you know. <laughs> but he was saying, we're not just brought to naught, meaning we're not just brought to zero, is what, you know, he could have just said zero. But anyway, <laughs> we're not just brought to zero. We're not just brought to naught. We're not just brought to zero. No, it's not that we're just forgiven and God says, now never do it again. I forgive you this once, but don't ever do it again. That would be if my sin was imputed to Christ and he died for me. But the righteous life of Christ says that his record of righteousness is imputed to you. We're not just brought to naught, we're, we're given on top of naught <laughs> all the righteousness of Christ. 
And so the amazing thing about the gospel is that through faith, my Jesus came to take on, I didn't mean to do an eraser there, my record of sin, and I, through faith, achieve his record of righteousness. Now, if you believe that, if you really believe that, if you live into that, well, then you won't go out every morning trying to achieve a righteous record of your own. You won't go out every morning trying to do something to make it in life because you've already made it. How much more justification do you need than the righteousness of Christ himself credited to you through faith in him? That's the amazing truth of the gospel. I hope that we believe that. I hope we believe all of that so that we as a church can live into the power of the resurrection and live into this great renewal project to get on with what God is calling us to do and quit trying to justify a life that has died with Christ. And that God is raised to, to, to do something else. Now, so what we're doing in this series is we're thinking about the righteousness of Christ and thinking about how it applies to us. And, and what, I'm, what I want to do is, is kind of break down some of the ways that we all, and again, when I, you know, I say we all, I mean, I'm, I'm here too, that we all think <laughs> that we all suppose righteousness will come to us. I, I mentioned last week, I got this idea from listening to y'all's baptism testimonies. <laughs> And I, I listen to y'all's baptism testimonies and, and you all talk about how you had a vision of righteousness. If I just do what my parents tell me to do, if I just do what my church tells me to do, if I just you know, make enough money or whatever it is, I had a vision of what would make me righteous. And then of course, you know, in, in the baptism stories, you find the Lord and you, you realize these things aren't going to satisfy me. They're not going to make me righteous. And so I want to kind of look at these head on and then, and then apply the righteousness of Christ to them. Now today, what we want to look at is expectations from our parents. Whether you like it or not, your parents frame your first vision of righteousness, of success, of what it means to make it. And, and this, is, this is a big topic. Um, it's one that, man, in my pastoral counseling, it always comes up. It always comes up. And, and people always fall into, you know, one of three camps usually. They're either very grateful for their parents, they had very good parents that pointed them to the Lord. <laughs> that's one, and that's the good one, right? But even those people, there's usually some traces of these other two there. The second is they, they never felt like they could live up to their parents' expectations. They admired their parents, but they couldn't live up to their parents' expectations. They felt a sense of harshness. So they, their parents were never quite satisfied with them, pleased with them. And they, they, that's really framed their vision of what does it mean to be righteous? Or third, there's, there's great pain and bitterness in their heart. They're, they're reacting against their parents. Their vision of righteousness is whatever my parents are not like, you know. The opposite of my parents is where righteousness is found. I'm going to live in reaction to my parents. That is, is how I'm going to make it in life. So I want to look at these three things today. First, the, the expectation of our parents. Number two, the limits of our parents. And then finally, our true parent. I wanted to think through this through the, the lens of, of, of our Lord. Um, and so this is an interesting text to look at. We, we don't know much about the childhood of Jesus. 
there's just not a lot. I mean, you know, we know a little about his birth and then from the beginning of his ministry to his death, we know a lot about that. But kind of between birth and the beginning of his ministry, there's not a lot of detail. It's really just these two accounts. This, he was taken to the temple to be presented. And then, of course, he went to the Passover feast and he was, he was left behind. Now, these are interesting accounts. You know, Mary and Joseph, we know a little bit about them. I mean, they had an amazing task. They, they knew, they had at least some sense, because God had told them through the messenger angel Gabriel that they were to be the parents of this Messiah, this one who would come to redeem Israel. Now, what, what, what we, we can kind of assume that they didn't understand was how Jesus was going to redeem Israel. We can kind of assume that they would have had a vision of what the Messiah was going to be that was common to those around them at the time. They would have kind of just believed what the rest of the culture was believing about who the Messiah would be. They, they maybe didn't have a vision that he would have to suffer and to die and to, to take on the sins of the whole world. I'm sure they had a vision of grandeur for the, for the people of Israel, their people. And of course, this was only reinforced throughout Jesus's life. You know, we didn't read this part, but there's a scene in Luke 2 where they're taking Jesus. This, I mean, just imagine this is his parents. They're taking this little baby to the temple for presentation. And Simeon, one of the most respected religious leaders of the day, this, this wise, very respected religious leader comes up and God had told him that he would see the Messiah and he sees the baby. I mean, just imagine this is his parents. He sees the baby and he says, I can die now. I've seen my Messiah. I've seen the Savior. And he's looking at this little infant. What an amazing thing to experience as parents. In that same scene, there's a prophetess, another uh, woman, one of the most respected women of Israel, this, this older woman that, that had spoken God's truth. And in the same way, she comes up and says, redemption has come to Israel. I just think about this as a, as a parent and the weight that they had. I mean, they're my own children. <laughs> I want to raise them in a good way. I want to do what's best for them. I try to think this through the lens of, man, what if you knew that this was the Messiah of your people? The point I'm trying to make here is <laughs> Mary and Joseph, like all parents, had expectations for Jesus. Now, their expectations may not have been exactly what he was going to do. I and mean, we know that his brothers didn't believe in him. There was definitely some misunderstanding in this household of who and what the Messiah was going to do. But his parents, like all parents, had expectations for their son. And again, that's, that's right. That's normal. They had a vision of righteousness in mind. And so did yours. So did yours. Your, your parents raised you. My parents raised me with a vision of righteousness. This is going to be good. This is going to, to help my child. It's going to, to make my child do well in this life. And as I said before, a lot of us are, <laughs> we spend most of our subconscious time and energy still trying to live into our parents' vision of righteousness for us. Or we spend a lot of time and energy trying to live away from our parents' vision of righteousness for us. In fact, most people that I know that don't believe in God, it's usually always a reaction to something. There's something they're reacting against, and usually it's some sort of deep-seated wound that goes back to their home. Another thing that I've realized just in, a, in counsel of people is, is a lot of these kind of parent wounds, the, the, the pains from our parents or 
realizing our kind of false sense of living toward the expectations of our parents, sometimes don't, we don't really become aware of them until we're a little older. I mean, a lot of times it's when people get in their 30s and even sometimes 40s that they realize these things. It can be very subconscious, but yet it dominates your whole life. Now, sometimes, of course, parents can have unreasonable expectations for their children. I think most of the time, though, we can have unreasonable expectations of parents. You know, we live in a very psychoanalytical age, don't we? We psychoanalyze anything, everything. And there's some of that that's good, right? Think about how into personality tests everybody is all of a sudden, right? You know, whatever the test you may be into is, you know, Enneagram is super popular, And people have psychoanalyzed themselves. Well, I'm a two, therefore I do it this way. You know, I'm a seven. And and, and again, I'm not saying that that's like totally unhelpful, but we can often like use that as as a shield to excuse ourselves, even as a mask for some of our sin or irresponsibility. And we do the same thing with our parents. Again, our parents have massive effects on us, but people can spend their whole life blaming them for their failures. They can become a crutch for a lack of faithfulness to the Lord. All of our parents have expectations, and they're not wrong to have that. And some of those expectations are, are better than others. But that leads to the second point, and that's the limits of parents. You know, this, is a, <laughs> this is actually, a, I think, an endearing story, a helpful story. Um, even the best parents, I mean, Mary and Joseph are certainly commended in scripture. They have some flaws about them. You know, I mean, here, Mary and Joseph, there's a bit of a Peter and Kate McAllister quality to them. If you don't know who that is, it's the parents on Home Alone. And of course, Peter and Kate McAllister, like Mary and Joseph, there was a big crew of people around them. They lost track of their son. But I mean, this is really bad. They're a day's journey away from Jerusalem before they realize Jesus is not with them. And then they have to go search for three days. I mean, he's away from them for four days. Now, we don't know if Jesus had checked himself into the King David Hotel there in Jerusalem or what. But of course, they search for him in a panic. Look at verse 48. It says, his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And I love what Jesus says. He says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I must be about his work. I must be in my father's house. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. But then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured these things in her heart. And I like this story. It speaks to the the limits or the brokenness of Mary and Joseph. They weren't perfect. It shows us the love that Jesus has for his father. It shows us the limits of our earthly parents. You know, if you're expecting your parents to be perfect, you'll always be disappointed. If you expect for everything that your parents tell you to be wise and right and good, you'll be disappointed. If you expect that if you do everything your parents tell you to do, right, if you live into their vision of righteousness for your life, and if you do everything will be Go well with you and you'll be happy. You'll be disappointed. I want you to hear this. The best that parents can do, the best that parents can do is to in brokenness, in brokenness, point their children to God. 
That's the best that parents can do. <laughs> they can't give you a vision of righteousness. That's, that's, that's beyond any parental uh, uh, ability. They can't give you a sense of righteousness. Only God can do that. The best that they can do is in their own brokenness, point you and keep pointing you to the hope that we can have in God. You know, I love a good two-by-two two grid. And I tried to create a two-by-two two grid to, to help us talk about this. Um, as parents, we certainly want to model godliness. We, we want to be models to our children. That's the, that's the vertical axis here. But we also must, I mean, God-honoring parenting, gospel-centered parenting also requires a high degree of humility of our own brokenness, right? We can't manipulate God to make us more powerful. Our job is to give a vision that he is powerful. And this is a big mistake that I think a lot of well-intentioned parents can make. Now, I mean, of course, if your parents, there's no model of godliness. <laughs> they may be humility in their brokenness. They, they may recognize that they may be very humble. They may recognize their own failures, but if there's no model of godliness, if there's no attempt to grow in godliness or grow in modeling basic things that parents should be modeling, like discipline, love for the Lord, service, well, then that's not what God desires, that your, your parents, at that case, is just a failure. And it's interesting. I actually know a lot of people that are in reaction to this kind of parenting. I will not be like my father. I will not be like my mother. I will not fail like they failed. And sometimes parents, they, they themselves are unwilling to live up to the standards that they give their children. And of course, this is just hypocrisy. They have standards, but they don't themselves model those standards. They're not, a, they're not a model of godliness in any way. And there's a lot of pride in their hearts. A lot of times this happens because parents are ashamed of their own life. This actually could happen. Hypocrisy could happen with the best of intentions. They could, they could be ashamed of themselves, but desire more from their children. But of course, I know a lot of people that have lived in reaction to this kind of parenting are deeply wounded by the hypocrisy of their own parents. Now, some of you, you had parents that were incredible models, very godly, very successful, very disciplined, but they didn't show a lot of humility when they failed. They weren't quick to admit when they were wrong. They showed very little mercy when you failed. And there can be a great sense of harshness in this kind of parenting. Again, there's a model of godliness here, but there's never any admission of wrong. I think of Ephesians 6, the warning that Paul gives. He says, parents, don't exasperate your children. This is, I think, what happens in this quadrant, this exasperation of a child. And, and I think, listen, a lot of us are living in reaction to this. This makes intimacy with your parent really hard. A lot of times it makes intimacy with God hard. You know, a lot of the people that I know that have rejected their faith have said, if the God, if the God, if God is like the God that my parents serve, then I want nothing to do with him. If God is only the guy that comes out when I'm in trouble, then I want nothing to do with him. If God is only the God that's always disappointed in me, because God wouldn't want you behaving like that, would he? 
And I want nothing to do with that kind of a God. And I just want to say, you know, it's, it's easy for parents, I want you to hear this, it's easy for loving and well-intentioned parents to fall on this side of the quadrant, to have such high expectations for your children, to want so much that you can be harsh with them, or that you can expect things of them that you can't even live into yourselves. It's very easy for parents to say things like, we need God's grace, or you need Jesus in your life. But then to parent your children toward a kind of moralism that never really teaches them to rest in the righteousness of God, and thus never really teaches them the good news of the gospel. I want you to hear this. The best that parents can do is in brokenness, point their children to God. In brokenness, point their children to God. This is, this is gospel parenting, where your children see in you, yes, a love for the things of God, but also a dependence on the grace of God. The best that parents can do is, in brokenness, point your children to the goodness of God, not only as a means of correcting their sin, right? You should be better like God, but to show them what is truly beautiful, the goodness of God that is truly beautiful. The best that parents can do is to point their children to the power of God. Again, not exploiting God's power to make you seem stronger, to make your life easier, but to show them that you are submitted to his power. The best that parents can do is to, in brokenness, point your children to the love of God. Again, not as a means of manipulation, but to, to show them how great God's love is for them and for you. The best that parents can do is to show their children, to lead their children, to trust in the plans of God, to trust in the plans of God for them. Again, not to exploit God's plans to make them do what you want them to do, but to actually trust God, to lead them to trust God, to trust his good plans. Now, here's the deal. I'm a parent. I haven't done this perfectly. <laughs> you parents out here, you're not doing this perfectly. Those of you who aren't parents yet, I know you think you're going to, but you're not going to do it perfectly. And my parents didn't do this perfectly, and neither did yours. And the best that you can do is forgive them. Learn from them. And here's the deal. And trust in the righteousness of Christ. Trust that it was never their righteousness. It was never their expectations that was going to make you righteous in the first place. The best that they could have ever done is to, in brokenness, point you to the goodness of God. Which leads me to my final point, which is our true parent. You know, parents are limited. And the best that parents can do is to point us to God. And the good news of the gospel, I want you to hear this. The good news of the gospel is that you have a true parent, God the Father, who loves you. I want you to hear that. You have a true parent, God the Father, who loves you. And he proved his love for you by sending his own son, Jesus. Not just to be a model. Not just to be a model. I want you to hear that. But to, for you, for your sake, on your behalf, achieve a perfect righteousness. Jesus has achieved righteousness for you. 
He has given you a right standing before God. You know, I don't know about your parents. I don't know if you ever met their expectations, but I have good news for you. You can go before God himself, your true parent, much greater parent than even your parents. You can go before that kind of God because of the righteousness of Christ and have from him the same kind of approval that Jesus has from him. In faith, you can have the same kind of delight that he can look at you through faith and say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Do you believe that? Are you trusting in the righteousness of Christ and the love of the Father? In Jesus, the Father has sent you a savior that has taken on all your sin. He's paid for every sin completely. I want you to hear that. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. I want you to do this. There's not even remembrance of your sins in Jesus. It's not that the father says, well, I welcome you in, but hey, (laughs) we all remember that one time. We're gonna be keeping an eye on that. No, no. The Father, through faith in Jesus, the Father holds no sin over your head. You're forgiven. The Father can look to you because of what Christ has done for you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You say, well, I'm not faithful. (laughs) I wasn't faithful. I know. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus was faithful. Jesus traded places with you. God looks at you and says, you are faithful in him. You receive the same kind of welcome that Jesus himself receives from God the Father. And in Jesus, we have the power of the resurrection, the hope of the power of the resurrection, that that in Christ we can live with God forever. And if this is true of you, then you can say with Jesus, why did you look for me? Why wouldn't you expect me to be in my father's house? Why wouldn't you expect my whole life to be in my father's house doing what my father desires me to do? Why wouldn't you expect my whole life to be oriented toward my true parent, toward my father? You know, look, here's the deal. Some of you guys had lousy parents. Some of you had great parents. But the best, the best that your parent could do is to in brokenness point you to your true parent, And God in his kindness is coming to you even now, even through these words, revealing himself to you. I mean, this is the invitation of the righteousness of Christ to have fellowship with God, to achieve a true righteousness. It's the invitation that Jesus said last week, that we looked at last week from Matthew 11. Jesus says, this is what our Savior says to us. All things, all things, fellowship with God, all things, union with God, it's all been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and all of you who trust in Jesus and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And here's the invitation. I want you to hear this. (laughs) Weary friends trying to live up to the expectations of your parents. Wounded friends trying to get over the bitternesses of the failures of your parents. Hear this invitation. 
Hear what your Lord says to you. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. All who labor and labor and labor and labor and labor trying to live up to some expectation that you can never fulfill. Come to me, come to me, all who labor. Come to me, all who are heavy laden, heavy laden with the deep wounds of past pain, hurt. Jesus, come to me, and I will give you rest. We respond to his invitation. Let's bow our heads together. I just want to lead you in a few moments of just meditation and thought. I don't know where everybody is today. I do know this. I do know that our parents give us our first vision of what righteousness is. And maybe for some of you, that's, a, that's an expectation that you, you have labored and labored and labored for and you just cannot attain. Maybe for some of you, that represents just a painful wound. And maybe for some of you, that, that just represents some disappointment or a sense of loss, maybe some shame. Here's the invitation. Come to me, come to me, come to me, says the Lord. Come to me, I will give you rest. My, my burden is light, my yoke is easy. I, I invite you just, as you meditate on these things right now and just the quietness of your heart to rest in the righteousness of Jesus to actually believe that you have a right and full standing before God himself. That's why we can stand before the Lord with boldness and assurance. Do you believe that? Have you received this invitation? Have you been set free to actually live into the power of the resurrection to come into the Father's house? Father, I pray that you would do your work now. You convict, you renew, you'd encourage, you'd remind, you'd increase faith. You would make the work and ministry of Jesus real to us. You'd apply it to us. And you'd lead us to rest. Father, do this work now. I ask by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.